morning, Cross Point. He is risen. Right? What an amazing, amazing truth this morning that we get to celebrate together. Children, you can be released for Children's Church now, so as they make their way out, I am so grateful for your presence here this morning as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection together. Now, here's the thing. I kind of just want to jump into it, right? Because Christians make an incredible claim on Easter Sunday. Like, we believe that on Friday, Jesus was crucified and killed on the cross, that he was buried in the tomb and he was dead. Friday, Saturday, until Sunday morning, when we say that, that he rose from the dead. But here's the thing, like, if you think about it, this is a crazy claim, right? Jesus did raise to life, but in reality, the boldness of the claim is even more than that when we stop and think as to what we are celebrating this morning. Because in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. The truth of what we're celebrating this morning is not that somebody stood outside the tomb of Jesus and says, Jesus, come forth. We've seen that. Jesus did that to Lazarus, a friend of his who had passed away, and Jesus stood outside the grave, and it was Jesus calling out for Lazarus to arise. But Jesus is saying, no, no one's going to have authority to raise him to life. No one stood outside the tomb calling Jesus to life. Jesus said he alone has the authority to lay down his life in being dead. Jesus alone has the authority to raise himself up to life. That's the claim we are making this morning. That's the claim that that you've heard us sing about and proclaim this morning. But here's the thing, if this claim is not true, we are wasting our time. I'm wasting my breath. If this claim is not true, then then what are we doing? Why sing? Why celebrate? Our faith is, is useless if Christ did not rise from the dead. We might as well just go and find the nearest restaurant and sit around and talk sports and hobbies and enjoy the afternoon because it all means nothing. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. Everything. If the claim that Christ made that we are proclaiming this morning is true, then life, faith, everything changes. That The meaning, the purpose of our life changes. Our hope in life and death is forever altered if the claim of Christ is true. And so here's the thing, I want us to focus on two questions this morning. Is it true that Christ rose from the dead? Like, is there anything in in Scripture, in history that says, yes, this happened, anything upon which our faith has a foundation? Is it true? And if so, who cares? Like, why should it matter? Why is it cause for celebration? Why do we set this day aside? Why do we remember and celebrate that Christ rose from the dead? What hope does it actually give us? Or is it just some past historical event? 
These are the two questions that we're going to look at this morning. And what I want to invite you to do now is to stand with me. Each Sunday as we gather, we preach from the Word of God that we believe is perfect and without error and out of respect and to differentiate what I say and what the Word of God says. We stand. And so I want to pray and ask that as we read His Word, that His Spirit would give us understanding, that His Spirit would help us, whether you're a believer or not this morning, that His Spirit would give your heart the ability to see the beauty of Jesus Christ this morning. So let's pray, and then I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning that we have to together. Lord, to celebrate your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, this is an amazing, mind-blowing statement that you alone had the authority to lay down your life and that you alone could raise yourself up to life from death. And yet, Lord, we know that this is true, and so help us to to see the beauty of this truth this morning. Help those who do not yet believe see the beauty of this truth this morning. Lord, glorify Yourself. Let everything else fade away. Let every word that I speak that is not from You be forgotten. And let every word that is from You weigh on our heart with Your Spirit and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, being Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is God's word. You can be seated. I grew up in a Christian home, and and, and I was blessed to have Christian parents, but as anyone who has been, had that similar experience, I had to go through my own crisis of faith, my own moment when I'm like, is this what I believe? Do I just believe this because I grew up in a Christian home and that's all I've known, or do I actually believe that the Bible is true? Do I actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, was he even a historical person? And so I brought all of these questions in pursuit, like many others before me have done. 
And I was amazed that even outside of the biblical testimony, which was eyewitness historical accounts, you also have on the historicity of Jesus, you have Flavius Josephus, who was a non-Christian Jewish historian in the first century, who wrote about Jesus. You have the Roman senator, who was a historian as well, who wrote about Jesus and his crucifixion within history, like the historicity of Jesus is not a question. That is not up for debate. But the question before us this morning is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is it reasonable to even conceive that, that is this just a statement of a fairy tale, some feel-good story that, that we use as a crutch? Or is this a statement of fact? And how can we know? Because th- there's been questions. There's been theories. Did Jesus really die? Or or was he just in such immense pain that he passed out and they mistook it? That, oh, he's dead, but he really wasn't. He was just unconscious and they laid him in the tomb and then he got better and he's like, yay, Jesus is alive. Maybe that's what happened. Or or, or maybe they misplaced his body. You know, it, it, it was chaotic, around that time. So maybe they took him down and and they put his body in some unmarked grave and and they just misplaced it. Like, whoops, yay, Jesus is alive. Or maybe they went to the wrong tomb that morning. Jesus was dead and buried in some grave and then they went to the tomb and they're like, look, it's empty. I guess he rose from the dead. Maybe the disciples stole it. Maybe they they snuck in in the middle of the night and and to make all that that they heard Jesus say true, they stole the body and hid it and then passed the lie, the greatest con in history, that Jesus rose from the dead. There's all sorts of theories that people use to try to, to cause doubt. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? But here's the amazing thing. In the historical account that we have recorded for us in the gospel, I want you to put on as if you're an investigative journalist. Because there was a man named Lee Strobel who was an award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't even consider to examine the claims of God. Until his wife, who was an agnostic, became a Christian and started going to church. And he's like, what are you doing? That's crazy. But then he began to see that that her character was changing. Her values were changing. And he's like, what is this? And so he decided to put his investigative journalism into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to say, is this true? If you were doing an investigation, if you were having interviews, what would you say to these claims? And what we see in the biblical account is that it answers all of these questions. Now, I'm jumping around between the various accounts this morning. So to make it a little easy, you're going to see the references on the screen. So you can see that this isn't just me saying this is what God's word, the historical documents say, but also to help you. Because did Jesus really die or or, or did he just pass out from the pain? What's reasonable to assume? John 19 tells us, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came blood and water. Now, here's the thing. Those who were crucifying Jesus were professional executioners. Their job, what they knew how to do, was kill you. 
So they saw this and they're like, there, he's dead. Medical examiners, though, have looked at this and have done an investigation. What does that mean? Was he actually dead? Today, doctors call this, and I'm reading this because I'm a pastor, not a doctor. Okay, so if I mispronounce anything, I just need grace because this is not my expertise. But I'm reading from PhDs who it is their thing. Doctors have talked about this as hypovolemic shock, a term referring to when there is a low volume of blood in your body. And so what happens is, imagine the flogging. When they took this leather strands that had bones and shards in it, and they ripped the flesh from his back, and, and there was a large amount of blood that was lost. And then that they put his clothes on him, and the blood dried, and then they tore them back off to reopen all the wounds, to cause extensive bleeding, and then the crucifixion. And so what happens is the fluids were getting so down in his body, and then the heart begins to try to pump fluid that isn't there. And it starts to go into shock, like, where's the fluid? Where's the blood? And so it, it starts to seize, and, and victims can pass out. They can go unconscious. That they have the kidneys begin to shut down, trying to store fluids in the body. They begin to experience this extreme thirst as the body is trying to replenish fluids to the body, as the heart continues to race and race and race. And it's this extreme thirst. And we see that in Scripture when Jesus says, I'm, I thirst. We see the longing for his body to replenish those fluids, and instead they give him vinegar. And as the heart continues to race, the hypovolemic shock causes fluid together in the sac around the heart and around the lungs. It's called pericordial effusion, a gathering of fluid in the membrane around the heart and around the lungs until you suffocate. Your heart seizes and you die. And so when they took that spear and out came both blood and water, it showed. It was proof to the executioners and medically that Jesus had died. He did not just pass out in shock. He was in fact dead. But you're like, well, maybe, okay, so he was dead. But maybe they put him in the wrong tomb. Like, whoops, we lost his body. Maybe that's what happened. But Matthew 27 tells us that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And so Jesus was placed in a known tomb where there wasn't anything else. It was a tomb that was carved out of the rock with one single entrance into it. It was a known tomb. So you're like, okay, so they knew where the tomb, it was a known tomb, but maybe they forgot. Maybe nobody saw where they put it. I mean, if it hadn't been used before, maybe nobody saw where they laid the tomb. And so when they went to go look for him Sunday morning, all they found was an empty tomb because they were looking in the wrong spot. But see, this is when, when you do the investigation, when you look at the eyewitness account, who knew what and when? What were the events? How did they transpire? Let's put the scene together. 
And we see then in, in Mark 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary saw where he was laid. This little statement that if you're just reading the text, you kind of jump over it. Okay, so they saw where it was laid. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is because some people would want to say, well, they went to the wrong place. But the evidence is saying they knew where he was laid. And they knew where to go come the morning. Well, okay, then maybe the disciples, maybe they stole the body, right? Because to keep this con going, they stole the body, they hid it, and then they're like, yay, Jesus is alive. Is that reasonable? In Matthew 27, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders go to the Roman authorities who were over the Jews at that time in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders are saying this. We remember how that imposter, how that Jesus said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So he's like, look, go and order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell all the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So I want to paint this picture. What does this mean? Okay, here, like, if we read it too quick, what we think is like, oh, here, here's somebody, a guard. Go put them in front of the tomb. And we see one guy standing there through the night guarding the tomb. But that's not what this is saying. See, a guard for the Romans was actually a group of 16 men. What was considered a guard. And these, these men had to live by this strict set of rules. And one of the things was, of these 16 men, they were responsible for a six-foot square area. Not very big. Six square feet. Right? And, and if they sat down, if they fell asleep, if they even leaned against something, they would be beaten taken with all of their clothes and lit on fire until they were dead. And not just them. All 16 men this would have happened to. All 16 men would have been killed, burned alive for falling asleep, for sitting down. So tell me, how 12 disciples who were scared to death after the crucifixion, who ran in fear and even denied Christ, overtook 16 Roman soldiers. And not only that, that they put a cord. When they said they sealed the tomb, there would have been a rock that was pushed in front of the tomb. Most likely this cork-style stone that would have been wedged into the entrance. The only entrance into the tomb, and they would have put a cord around it and put the ceiling clay where those two parts of the rope met. And as it dried, they would take the signet of the Roman governor and press it into the seal so that it could not be opened. This is why, Mark tells us, as the women who bought spices for, to, to anoint the body of Jesus, as they're approaching, they're like, what are we going to do about the stone? How are we going to move it? It's unreasonable. So then what happened? The Gospel of Matthew also tells us that that morning when Christ was dead in the grave and He raised Himself to life, there was an earthquake that shook the ground. 
there was an angel of the Lord that descended that was like lightning. In the 16 Roman guard, the soldiers who were there fell and fainted before the sight of this angel of the Lord as the ground shook and moved the stone away. And he is not here. He is risen. This is the claim in the statement of Scripture. And the thing that was so moving to me was the testimony of the disciples and of all those who followed. Because I see them after the crucifixion. And they're all afraid. They're all running. They're denying Jesus before a slave girl. They're like, I don't know Him. Look, I don't even know Him. And now these men... Seeing not just the empty tomb, but the risen Savior, were changed forever. They were completely changed. James was the first of the disciples to be killed. That Imagine this. You see the resurrected Christ. You saw Him die. You saw Him crucified. You saw Him placed in the tomb. And they ran and they looked. And they saw that it was empty. But then they saw the resurrected Christ. They saw him alive with their own eyes. And and their lives changed completely. James, the accuser. James was accused of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And the man who accused him was so moved by James' faith. Like as they had James on his knees ready to cut his head off. And they're like, deny, deny that Jesus rose from the dead. Deny it. And he's like, I will not deny what is true. And even his accuser tried to stop it and tried to say, don't kill him. And when they wouldn't, he knelt down beside James and lost his head along with James to proclaim the resurrection. Peter who denied Jesus. Peter, who when he first heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, called it an idle tale. Don't tell idle tales. This is just a fairy tale to make yourself feel better in the midst of grief. Until he went and saw the empty tomb for himself. Until he saw the risen Savior. And then he could do nothing else but to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Going to Rome, dying himself by crucifixion, but not willing to die in in the same way as Christ. So he was crucified upside down. Andrew, the brother of Peter, he went to Turkey and he's like, Christ is risen. And they crucified him in Turkey. Matthew went to Ethiopia and he proclaimed there, Christ has risen. He is alive. And they, they killed him with this two-handed axe. Doubting Thomas, the one who was like, until I see it with my own eyes, I don't believe it. And then he saw it with his own eyes. And then he touched the wounds of Jesus. He saw the resurrected Lord. And he was so changed that he went to India and he proclaimed, Christ is risen. To the point where they killed him with spears. The list can go on. Again and again it can go on. Not just the disciples, but so many afterwards. He has risen. 
These men were changed. But who cares? Okay, so he rose from the dead. Why should it matter? Why should we care? Like, I want us to feel like there is a reasonable way that we can say, yes, Christ has risen. There is historical evidence. There is eyewitness evidence. So he rose from the dead, but who cares? Why does it matter? We celebrate. Why should we sing? Why should we preach on this? Why should we gather? What's the point of it all? The fact of the resurrection is ultimately the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation. It is proof that our sins are forgiven. It's the hope in both life and in death. It is our only hope. It is the root. If this is not true, then our faith is useless. My preaching is meaningless. But if it is true, then everything changes. Everything. But why? See, I'm assuming most of you have watched the news of some kind on your phone. You've read about it. We see the reality of the brokenness of our world, don't we? Like, we see wars. We see disease. We see illness. We see injustice over and over again. We see the weight and we ask ourselves, what's wrong? Why is the world so broken? Is this the way it was meant to be? And in the Scripture it says, no, this is not the way it was intended. When God created the heavens and the earth, He created mankind in His image to reflect His glory. And people and mankind flourished under the rule and reign of Christ. But then we decided that, you know what, we can do this better. We can do this ourselves. We got this, God. We don't need you. And in that decision, we rebelled against God, all mankind. And the consequence of that was separation. The the way that the Bible talks about this is in death. The wages, the cost of sin is death. That's the consequence of our faults and failures. Death meaning separation. And there's both a physical reality to this, that when we die, our spirits are separated from our bodies. There's also a spiritual aspect of death, that we, our souls, are separated from God. And we are separated from one another. We feel this reality. We feel this longing. We feel this void. And we try to fill it. We try to fill it with degrees, and we try to fill this with success, and we try to fill this with family, and with entertainment, and with drink, and with sex, and we try to fill this longing inside. And yet it lingers, and we feel that separation, and we cry out, what will save us? What, what, what will fill that void? What longing are you trying to satiate and how are you trying to to satisfy that longing? And we cry out, what will rescue us? And we try to dull the pain. We try to forget. But it always seems to return. And then we see Jesus say, I am the rescuer. God in human flesh to pursue a broken humanity. 
Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to rescue. I have come to restore. I have come to heal what is broken, to fill that void. And Jesus lived a life. He was perfect, without fault, without failure. He didn't deserve to be separated from God because of his sin. And yet, when he died on the cross, it's saying he took that separation, that death that we deserved, that separation from God, Jesus took on himself. He stood in our place so that instead of your separation, you might have unity with God. And that is why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last breath. And in that, he paid the penalty, the cost of our sin. He paid for on the cross that separation from God. In his lifeless body was laid in the tomb. Jesus voluntarily laying down his life to pay the penalty for our sin and his body was laid in the tomb but here's the thing if christ did not rise there still is no hope even scripture says this in first corinthians 15 if christ had not been raised then all of our preaching it's useless in your faith it's useless and we apostles, we're all lying about God. For we've said that God raised Christ from the grave. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Do you see that? This is the weight of why the resurrection matters. If Christ did not rise, we are still guilty in our sin. We are still separated from God because of our faults and failures, the death we deserve. But here's how the passage continues. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstborn of a great harvest of all who have died. But in fact, He has been raised. This is our hope. And what does that mean? That means that as I'm preaching, there is a confident hope that I have that it is not meaningless. That there is a desire and a reality that the power that raised Christ from the dead is still at work this morning in this room. That there are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus and you feel a stirring and a confidence in your heart. This is the power of God that rose Christ from the dead at work in our hearts this morning. There are those here or watching online who are hearing this for the first time and you feel this stirring in your heart. Like I feel that void. I feel that separation. And could this be? Is this true? Maybe I've ridiculed it. Maybe I've put it off. But maybe this is true. And you feel the stirring in your heart. And because in fact Christ has been risen from the dead, I pray that the Holy Spirit and His power moves on your heart to lead toward faith this morning. This is our heart. This is our prayer. 
Because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so your faith is not useless, but it has meaning. It has purpose. Your faith this morning has a foundation that is built on the fact that, in fact, Christ has been risen. And more than that, you can know with certainty that your sins, every fault, every failure has been forgiven because Christ rose from the dead. This is the confident assurance that we have. This is why it matters. Because if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then all of it's meaningless. And we're still dead and separated from God in our sins. But in fact, Christ rose. So we have hope this morning. We have a joy that has already been secured. This is our hope. And the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus saying, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. Think through this slowly with me for a moment. I also pray for you this morning. Everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that you will understand the incredible, the magnificent, the mind-blowing greatness of God's power that is at work for those who believe in Him. And this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in a place of honor at God's right hand and in the heavenly realms. This is the power of the resurrection. The power that raised Christ from the dead is not something that we're just talking about that happened in the past. That it was a long time ago, and yes, Jesus raised from the dead. But what I want you to see is that that was just the beginning. This mighty, incredible power of God that rose Christ from the dead is still at work today. Today. And you're going to be able to see that and taste of that because there is hope that we have both in death and in life. I want you to see the reality why it matters that Christ raised from the dead, and how it changes everything. Because the resurrection of Jesus changes how we even see death. As many of you know, this past Tuesday, we mourned the death of Jen Chen's mom, who was here just a few weeks ago. As I see Jen sitting here now. And there's a loss and there is a grieving when we still feel the pain of death today. And as planning a memorial service, planning a ceremony in death while also preparing for Easter Sunday, I am reminded again of the hope of the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ when it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 like dear brothers and sisters like dear brothers and sisters we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope 
For since we believe, since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will raise, will bring back with him the believers who have died. See, this is what Scripture says. Because Jesus rose, death is not final. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The reality is death is not the end of the story because Christ rose from the dead. And though we grieve, we grieve as people with hope. We grieve with Jen, the loss of her mom, but we also celebrate with confidence that this Easter to be absent within the body is to be present with the Lord. That she is in the presence of God celebrating His life and resurrection because Christ rose from the dead. She too will rise. And though her spirit is separated from her body, in spirit she is with God in His present now, but she too will be raised when Christ returns. Because Christ is a first fruit of resurrection. This is the hope we have in life and in death. That even in death, it is not final. It is not the end of the story. Because Christ Himself was raised from the dead. But we also have hope in life. Today, now, in this moment, that God is continuing to transform lives. He is continuing to take people who have hated God, hated others, and He is transforming them, making them into new creations. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work transforming lives today. And you're going to be able to see this, that as we continue in the worship service, we're going to be celebrating baptisms together. You're going to see five testimonies of people who have, were dead in their sins, living for themselves, who have been radically transformed by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, has worked to transform their lives. And as it says in Romans, that they, what God has done in their life, it's something personal. It's something spiritual. We can't see it. But what you're going to see in baptism is this picture, this physical demonstration, this picture of what God has done internally in them. It says in Romans 6, we were jo joined with Christ Jesus in baptism. We joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Do you see what you're going to hear me say? Is I'm going to be asking them, I'm going to say, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And you will hear them declare that this is true, this is who they are that they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And then you're going to hear me say that I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then in quoting from Romans 6, you're going to hear me say, buried with Christ in baptism. It is showing that they have been crucified with Christ, that their sins, their faults, their failures died with Christ on the cross. 
It has been buried with Him, but just as Christ was raised to life, so too, you will hear me say, raised to walk in the newness of life. That who they are today is not who they were. Because Christ rose from the dead. This is the power of the resurrection that we don't just believe for something that happened in the past, what we believe and continue to see the fruit of today, that we continue to see and celebrate today. So what do we do with this? For one, we're going to celebrate together as we sing, as we worship, as we celebrate baptisms. But I also know that for some and family and it's Easter Sunday, some may be here and you may be thinking, ah, okay, maybe. I don't know where I'm at with some of this. I don't know if I'm really tracking with everything you say. Maybe. <clears throat> and I want to encourage you to continue to investigate, continue to ask questions. And I want to invite you in, in one way to participate in this. You're going to see on the screen that if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I, I want you to encourage on your phone, if you were to pull that out and text the word Jesus to the number you see on the screen, I want to help you explore why the gospel is good news. But I understand on a Sunday morning with everybody here, that might feel uncomfortable. And there can be this personal process to that of exploring what your doubts are, what questions you have. And so this is a way for us to engage in the coming week. You will receive a text message each morning with a different aspect of, of the gospel, of what this means. It's going to be a place where if you have questions, if you have doubts, we can write back and forth because our spiritual journey is not alone that you're not alone to wrestle with these questions. And I want to invite you into a conversation. There'll also be a way that I would love to get together if you're comfortable with that. There's also just a way for the next five days you'll get a text message with something for you to read, to think about, that you can interact with if you so desire. But I want to invite you to respond because you have to come back to the question. Is the resurrection true? And if so, why does it matter? It is the hope and foundation of every person here who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And if it has so transformed lives, you cannot ignore it. And so I would encourage and invite you, discover Jesus together to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. I can think of no better response this morning than for us to celebrate, for us to sing and proclaim and rejoice together that we were dead and separated in our sins and now we are alive in Christ because He rose from the dead. And so I want to invite you, let's celebrate and worship together through communion, through song, and then through baptisms.